This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast. Episode 195 brought to you in association with Smart and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Patrick Dunn, author of Boards, A Practical Perspective, of which the second edition recently came out in 2021. Patrick knows a hell of a lot about boards. His main executive career was 26 years at 3i, starting in 1985, rising to the operating committee level, and therefore he has been deeply immersed in the unlisted board that many of you are involved in out there. And from 1997 onwards, he has written a total of four books on and around boards. One of which, in passing, called Director's Dilemma, written over 20 years ago, and still available second-hand at an incredibly moderate price, I wrote fulsome praise for on my blog on theenlistedboard.com. As it covers real-life scenarios and dilemmas, many of which have no particular right answer of such, where Patrick goes into the thinking of how the chairman and how the board approached all sorts of challenges and no-win situations, incredibly illuminating. Indeed, the eternal timeliness of these scenarios is shown by the fact that a number of them are included in his 2021 comprehensive coverage, by which I mean some 426 pages on the board. Patrick joins us today to discuss not just his book, a distillation of getting on for 40 years of board experience from many perspectives, but also what key pieces of advice he would give a founder today based on that experience. Patrick chairs Board Consultancy Board Delta and the charities EY Foundation and ESSA, Education Sub-Saharan Africa. He is a trustee of the Chartered Management Institute, a visiting professor at Cranfield and the founder of Warwick in Africa. And there was me thinking it was in the centre of England. Ha ha. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Patrick. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Great pleasure to be here, Mike. Thank you. Now, I generally like to take credit for all things that sort of go my way and make the podcast look professional, because there are very few things that make it look professional in the first case. But this is one of the many ones that I actually can't take credit for, in that having just last week finished my magnum opus, or as a listener put it, a Jeroboam opus, on global governance and, and state governance in, in the current world. This looks very much like a very well logically planned sequence, which is why I do global governance, a bit on state governance, and now we're down to board governance. And then we're going to spend the rest of the year at the lower level inside fintechs and FS. But it was actually a complete coincidence. However, there are many reasons that I'm pleased to talk to you today, one of which is your experience, the other which is having little interest in boards myself. But the main one is that the New Year's special. People might think it's easy that I just get to waffle on my own, but uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. And I, I wrote 25,000 words in a week, promptly gave myself a migraine and only had time to read 15,000. So just sort of chatting, generally interrupting, <laughs> being rude and that while someone else sort of uh, uh, sings for the supper is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing. And when I asked you if you had something sort of fresh that we might not have discussed as chit-chat on the introduction to the podcast before, and I give you some examples of what people have done, you did indeed come straight out of the box with a a topic which I'm entirely certain we've never discussed before, which is, I don't know whether there's a sort of delicate way to put this, but you can explain to listeners, hanging out with murderers and rapists. Yes, well, one of the great joys and passions of my life has been helping young people manage conflict more 
effectively and uh, through the charity Leap Confronting Conflict. And Leap has a very strong relationship with an organisation called Kalisa, and uh, that was sort of originated in South Africa. And on one of my many visits to South Africa, uh, I had the privilege of running a workshop for murderers and rapists in a prison called Zondervoorter in the middle of nowhere. And the theme of the workshop was, you know, how do you manage the conflict when you come out of prison? And, and the hard thing motivationally was that very few of these people who I was running this session for had had any prospect of getting out. So it was quite a it was quite a tough gig, as you can imagine. And um, but I've always enjoyed working with dysfunctional people and uh, trying to find ways to help them become less dysfunctional and more productive, more effective. So that was probably the pinnacle of that kind of uh, experience. Oh, well, in terms of working with dysfunctional people, you're on exactly the right podcast for that one. So I, I look forward to your assistance. I mean, as you say, there are many of them unlikely to get out, but I, I presume that actually avoiding conflict inside a prison will actually generally make their lives a hell of a lot smoother as well. So it's of immediate use. I mean, were these people sort of between a slightly stronger perspex screening yourself or you just sort of left in a room on your own with sort of 50 murders and rapists and, and say, I hope this goes well? There are very good health and safety provisions, but... At the end of the day, you know, when you're doing these sorts of things, you know, you've you've got sort of protection nearby. And the spectrum of people is is a range from in terms of their their degree of psychopath. Some people, you know, had committed murder through a terrible mistake and others had done it in completely premeditated, difficult way. So there's a whole range, but there's always an edge, let's put it that way. Gosh, well, that's very brave of you. And you remind me talking of podcasts. I think it was James Dellingpole and the Sheep Farm podcast, maybe last year or the year before, time has started to blur, where it didn't sound very prepossessing as a, as a topic, but it turned out quite fascinating. They were talking to a chap who had spent, or something like, I didn't know, 20 years as a prison psychiatrist in one of the most dangerous prisons in America for paranoid schizophrenics or something. And, you know, and in terms of the spectrum of people with sort of low impulse control who do really wacky things, he was there. And... Um, it was a fascinating podcast, actually. It was completely sort of off, off topic. We don't have time for it, but it does relate. In that he had this great innovation of actually listening to them and hearing what they said. And he was the first person that, that was serious when they said, well, look, I hear voices telling me I've got to kill this person. He said, oh, so he started talking to them about the voices. Long story short, got himself in all sorts of trouble, but he found sort of ways to, to help people because everybody else approached them from the perspective of, look, I'm the professional, uh, basically, they wouldn't put it this way, you know, you're nuts, I'm here to help kind of stuff. But he took it the other way around. What do I know? You tell me. And that's a very, very good lesson for being a board member and being a non-exec. How do I deal with murders, rapists and schizophrenics? <laughs> if you've come in with, you know, a lot more experience than perhaps the management team, Actually, you know, the importance of listening is really critical if you really want to help them. You can't just assume what they don't know or what they need help with. You have to sort of hear it and, and find it out and then help rather than the other way around. Yes. I mean, Aristotle, I think, said that sort of governance is the most important thing in, 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 in a civilization, in a society, when a polis, which is why I did the global one and, and, and state governance last time, because that's quite anomalous right now. And I think the same thing happen, it applies to to businesses, um, although generally it's only the people who are at that level or one level below who actually sort of see it. If you're just sort of a developer in a company, then you know it's sort of so remote, it might as well be in the sky. And I think one of the benefits of boards having, well, it 
varies a lot between unlisteds and listeds, but shall we say more than their fair share of people who are sort of quite older and wiser, is that there's a great temptation when one's young, young man, young woman, and you've got five, 10, 15 years in business, think, oh, yeah, I understand how all this works. <laughs> but as time goes by, you realise that actually uh, one really doesn't understand very much at all. And, and my favourite Buddhist monk, a chap called Ajahn Samedo, who's the longest serving Western monk in the world, I think. He's about 88 now. He's American. He was in the uh, Peace Force or whatever it was, uh, J.F. Kennedy's thing, back in the day. He said when he was 18, he knew everything about everything. And now he's 88 and meditated for 50, 60 years. He said, I really don't know anything. And so I think it's this genuine humility that no matter what algorithms you come up when you're young, you know, you find over time that there is, in Zen terms, no right answer, no fixed solution. And it's a bit like relationship counselling. You know, oh, you've got problems in your relationship, Patrick. Sorry to hear this. This is the right answer without actually finding what the problems are, what the context and, and all that is. So, exactly. yes, I th- yes, I think wisdom is very situational. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. So talking about your journey from being sort of young and uh, I think in your case, very good at uh, sums to being somewhat older and uh, considerably wiser and the journey through through sort of knowing quite a lot to sort of uh, knowing less and less and having to actually get around to listening. How's your career journey been from when you used to do sums and, and what led you to 3i and boards and, and all that kind of stuff so people know where you're coming from? Yeah, so, so I was born in, in Tofters in, in Liverpool, a, a fairly challenging place to be and not a natural place for directors to, to come from. I'm mildly dyslexic, so I struggled a bit at some things at school, but I was okay at maths and I managed to get to Warwick to do maths and statistics. Uh, then I got a job in the chemicals industry with their products doing operations research, which was fantastic training for being a board member because you were sort of doing modeling systems i mean it was very crude in those days compared to now but you know doing lots of simulations all of those sort of things and you sort of thought in a system way so you're thinking about the whole system you know you can't have something go out of control in one part of the plant otherwise this whole thing blows up so you have to think about all the consequences and actually one of the that's a fantastic lesson for, for later life given the area i was born in and the the environment I was in, you know, I experienced a lot of conflict and uh, that sparked my interest in uh, in conflict. And actually, I learned some of the things I'd learned in my sort of numerous part-time jobs as a kid came in very handy at products because it was a very logical company, very ordered company. It's an industrial gas company. Things blow up. You have to, everything has a process. And I found actually the the people skills I picked up on the street really came in incredibly handy when getting people to align objectives, getting people to do things they didn't necessarily want to do. Then I did an MBA and and sort of learned a lot lot more about things I didn't know anything about, like HR and marketing and, and stuff like that. And finance, which I knew something about, but not enough. And then I got this amazing job with 3i, working in Yorkshire initially with loads of entrepreneurial people, rampantly entrepreneurial people in startups, technology companies, some very traditional manufacturing companies, in family companies, doing buyouts, a whole range of different things. And it was brilliant. And I had a fantastic boss who taught me a huge amount about how to get the best out of people, especially dysfunctional people who were brilliant at some things, but had these big gaps in other aspects of of doing their job. That was great. And I loved working with the cases in difficulty. So I I ended up getting promoted running a workout portfolio, which was great fun. And then I had a series of jobs within 3i over the years 
ending up with sort of big group jobs. I got made marketing director at one point. I knew nothing about marketing. It was great. And then I was lent to the government to help with the Higgs review, which ended up uh, with the uh, recommendation of the senior independent director role and led to the creation of 30% club for gender balance and so on. And actually, that that came out of some basic statistics in that people were, were talking about, let's get more women on board. And I was saying, well, we, actually, what we need to do is solve solve the system and sort the pipeline out because you know we can move the women around at the moment if you if you want but actually you've got to sort the pipeline out so looking at causes and looking at how you might change things for the long term is is another interest of of mine 3i was fantastic for me i did a lot of work looking at how boards work in the portfolio because i realized quite early on that the better the board we had, the more money we made and the less hassle we had. So I put a lot of thought into what makes a good board, what makes a good board member. We ran a whole series of sessions for people who were on the boards of our portfolio companies around the world, training our own people, that sort of thing. It was brilliant. And then I was allowed also to serve on a number of boards that were nothing to do with 3i. So I was on the University of Warwick board, on the Chartered Management Institute board, which I rejoined again later and various other things. Uh, it, was, it was great. And I retired partly because I could about 10 years ago and partly because I wanted to spend more time in Africa and create an organisation which became ESSA. But I decided I really loved this board stuff and I really liked conflict stuff. So I started up a, a little business called Board Delta, which does that sort of work. So it does advisory and training in the board, in the board space for a range of very large corporates, private equity firms, to small charities uh, sort of across the spectrum. So that's my sort of exec career and my non-exec career is since retiring, I, I chair a, a few things and I, I, I love chairing. It's good fun. It sounds all sort of very logical and clear and simple with hindsight, although I, I you know, 40 years <laughs> is easier to summarise at the time. It's perhaps never so obvious where one's going to be the, the year after next. It's a bit like sort of, you know, a, a slightly guided random walk through a wood at the time. Oh, do I turn left? Do I turn right? Do I oh, do completely. This, do that? But yeah. then when you walk through the wood, you go, oh, well, well I did this and I did that and I did that. <laughs> it just makes sense. Yeah. Yes. And in terms of the overall tapestry, obviously, there are an incredible number of elements we could pull out of there. But as I found myself, it's a hell of a challenge to write one book, let alone four. So what was it that uh, possessed you to write four? Uh, and off the top of my head, you took whatever a decade or two off and then uh, made a return to the fray. Is that a bit like sort of uh, uh, women who have a baby and go, oh, my God, never again. And then it's sort of that five years, three, four, five years later, they go, oh, I think I like a, a, a baby. Had you forgotten how terrible writing a book was? Or, or did you actually enjoy writing a book? Yeah, so the, the first one was weird. Which book was that? That was called Running Board Meetings, and that was 1997. And I went to this absolute shocker of a board meeting, just a complete car crash. And this is no joke. I, I finished the board meeting, and the next morning I went to the, the nearest bookshop and asked if, if, they, if they had a book on running board meetings, because the chair of this board had chaired the meeting so badly. I thought, if I buy him a book, it might save me some time. And they said, oh, we can't find anything with that sort of title. So I'm mildly dyslexic, and I, I thought, well, and I don't have the time to write a book. So I wrote a little sort of six-page flyer with cartoons in about, you know, running board meetings. And we printed them and gave them out to some people in the three-eye reception, and before I knew it, 13,000 of these flyers had gone out. People kept asking for them, you know, people would share them and so on. And then a publisher approached me and said, you know, we've heard about this. Can you 
turn this into a book. So I did. And it was a lovely thing to do. But then, and, and it got published in lots of different languages and countries. And, and then they kept asking for new editions. And I got to, I think, edition four. And I got bored with that. And then I wrote Director's Dilemmas, which is, you know, the book of case studies, which was great fun to do. You know, real life situations that you have to meander your way and navigate through. And then I wrote a, a sort of more sort of formal book, a sort of handbook for non-execs. But I, I was so busy building the social enterprises and my, my three-eye day job. I didn't do much writing for a while. But then in 2019, I wrote Boards. But I published it just a couple of weeks before the pandemic. Oh, yes. Good time. Oh, I know that one myself. So I had this tour organised and all the rest of it and I had to unpick that. But then I, I thought very quickly once the pandemic struck that, that you know, this is going to have a big change in the way that Boards operate. So I need to start thinking about a second edition quite quickly. And so I released the second edition at the end of 21. And I also had this idea at the time, which has now spawned something else, which is that we're moving from, I think we're moving from a maps world to a sat-nav world when it comes to decision-making on boards. Which means in simple terms. So we want to make decisions closer to the junction with live information and the way that we have been making decisions for many, many years has been more ritualistic, more similar for all sorts of decisions. So we have a strategic Bible. We have an annual budget. Those are the two things we rely on to navigate our way through. Whereas the world, and it was already changing before the pandemic, I think it's just been accelerated. But with the rise of big data, with big data analytics, with you know, greater uncertainty, with all the things that are going on, I think people want to make more flexible, have a more flexible, more resilient approach to the decision making that they take. And it varies by sector, obviously. But that phrase seemed to strike a massive chord. And so it's led to quite a lot of things since. And accompanying that, I also use this expression that I wasn't sure that as boards were as data savvy as we need to be. So you know, when you get interviewed to be a non-exec, you know, no one checks you can add up. No one checks you understand the difference between causation and correlation. No one checks, you know, you really understand the data and so on. But that's become increasingly important as we make this sort of journey from a maps to a, to a Zatnev world. So the, those two things, actually, in the second edition, those have been the things that people have sort of picked up. So I'm now doing data-savvy workshops and... Um, talking about how do you move from traditional approaches to more dynamic approaches in terms of planning and budgeting and so on. Fascinating. Well, let's come back to boards in what's now 2022, what they're, what they're there for and how that's changing. I mean, obviously, at the macro level, living in an information age is changing everything. I mean, I think one of the things that we both know is that if you've got a, a startup formed by a man and a dog in, in a pub tonight, it's very different from the board of Citigroup and the kind of things they will do and how they approach it will will vary a lot. And we'll return to that. I mean, I think your book is nicely divided into three key areas, purpose, people and, and, and process. But maybe it'll give people more of a sense of how we've got here before you explain a little bit about here. If you just tell us a little bit from your perspective, broadly, broad brush, of the flavour of what boards were like in the 80s, what they were like in the 90s. 1992 was the Cadbury report, which started a whole codification. Higgs was one, the, another important one, obviously, which you, um, you were on the committee of. And we've now got some two dozen reports um, on how thou shalt do board governance. Interestingly, there are uh, next to no reports on how thou shalt do state governance, which uh, people might think is even more important than uh, board governance, but uh, 
let's gloss over that one. So anyway, let's go back to the sort of, shall we say, pre-codification, pre-corporate governance world in the 80s. What was your feel of just the felt sense of if you could send listeners back in a time machine to an 80s board meeting, how would that feel? How would a 90s one feel? How would a 2000s? Just to, to get the story. Yeah, I mean, I, I was very lucky because I could see lots of different types of boards and 3i, well, it became a FTSE 100 in, when it listed in 94. So I can see the, the difference in the transition as well. So in the 80s, and particularly in the world that I was in, there were many more chair CEO combined roles. You know, the chair was pretty dominant character in a, in a lot of situations. The non-execs were, in terms of time commitment, putting in far less time the accessibility of information was was a lot less because you know we don't have the tools that we have today boards tended to focus on the the big picture stuff in the main and the levels of accountability and the expectations of board members were relatively high but nothing like as high as today so it's a very different sort of environment also without social media without the kind of media retention and access that there is today you know boards could do a lot uh, you know without doing everything in the glare of transparency which you you do today now if you think of an annual report for a FTSE 100 at the time compared to today you know it would be a a fraction of the amount of information that was portrayed one big thing is just a little example which came and then this is a change to the 90s was the the focus on remuneration you know that was really not big deal in certainly the mid-80s, maybe the later 80s it was starting to become. But when a lot of, in the UK, a lot of state-owned enterprises went private and then public, ironically, uh, when, when they listed, I think seeing, you know, what utility people were paid and, and all of that really sparked. And that led to the Greenbury Code. Adrian Cadbury, I think, was a brilliant man and, uh, and also a really good man. And he was very much of the view that principles matter the, the most. So rather than, you know, very tightly drawn regulation, he was really a very principled man himself. And he was a sort of Quaker by background, like many of the family. And he, he was a very kind of, you know, doing it right. And he wrote a lovely book around being, being a chair, which is, which is very good. But his Comply or Explain approach led to quite a sea change because that actually increased the amount that people were reporting people it also put an, an onus on people to explain themselves if they weren't in line with what might be perceived best practice the boards in the 90s were uh, you know there was a mass of of internationalization so there was a lot more discussion around what's happening in other countries and and Adrian had kicked that off and that then led to, well, you know, how come the Germans are more successful than we are? What model do they have? Would that work here? And, you know, there was a big debate around should we have supervisory boards or unitary boards? And of course, in the UK, the prevailing model is, and it still is, unitary, although in many ways we, we've actually you know, gone down the supervisory uh, route. 
And, and it's a, ten, a tangent, I may have mentioned the podcast before, but it was England that invented the two-tier board. And I wrote quite a, a, a long blog post about how Holland imported that with a significant change. And uh, over time in England, the two-tier board withered away. So what was the, the general meeting, which was the meeting of all the owners who then told the uh, directors what they were going to do for the next year, gradually withered away to where they're sort of allowed to ask the odd question, but otherwise it's all, all, all doesn't change. So there's been lots of changes over time. And I think it came back to Cadbury because it's sort of so important. And there's two sides of it. I mean, the first thing which I don't think he gets sufficient credit for is that not that there are many critics of boards these days. We live in a, a world where most kind of professions are orthodox uh, about um, orthodoxy. But if you take someone who is more critical of the direction of boards uh, over the last 20 odd years, like myself, it's very easy for Cadbury to quote, get the blame for starting a whole trend of 24 reports on the board should do this, the board should do that, the board should do that, and turning non-executive directors and chairmen into kind of, you know, off balance sheet civil servants or or state auditors that you're following all these codes and ticking all these boxes and and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, plenty of chairmen struggle with the sort of compliancy robot bit of it. But if you actually read Cadbury's report, he quite clearly says, I've been asked to look at the elements of financial control. Yeah. This is just about that. That's a very small part of what the board can do. And, and in my terms, there's a whole, the, the whole of a corporate creativity. It's not just like the board gradually becomes a senior audit committee. Yeah. And he gets the blame for that. And that's very unfair. It is because, and, and actually, if you read his, his work, I mean, and it comes to the heart of what I think is a current issue is that, you know, the main role of a board, I think, is if the organisation of the purpose is clear is to make sure you've got the right strategy the right resources and the right governance it's not just governance and it's also to provide a balance of oversight and support and i think in the private equity world which is one of the privileges of having come up that route your total focus is you know we we don't necessarily want non-execs to make sure there's good governance i mean we should be able to do that we want to add value to our investments and we want them to you know to support the management team help develop the management team to create the value that we thought we were going to create when we made the investment. So it's a bit like I was having this discussion earlier with someone about stakeholder strategy and and that person said to me, we need to have a stakeholder strategy because we're accountable. And I said, no, you, you need to have a stakeholder strategy because you'll make more money if you have one. Because if you think of who your key stakeholders are, your customers, your suppliers, your employees, you know, if you've got all them happy, and loving working for or with you, you're going to make more money. If you've got no environmental issues, the company's going to be easier to sell. So change your window, if you like. Don't look at it from the point of view of being all about accountability. Of course, it is about accountability to some extent, but it's much more about the adding value and the creating value. And society needs that hugely. So I think going back to the sort of timeline, we haven't got to the 2000s, but in the the 2000s, the explosion of technology, the creation of, you know, an internet kind of world, uh, I know it sort of started before that, but in terms of reaching a critical mass point and uh, all that, that that was very significant. And I think that changed the game in the way that, not just the way that boards operate, but also in terms of the skills that board members needed to have and the understanding they needed to have of a very different kind of world. And then each time we've had a major crisis, whether that be, you know, the currency crisis in the UK, the tech bubble bursting, the financial meltdown, the pandemic, each time there's a big, you know, from a company's point of view, external shock, 
we change, we develop, we adapt because we have to, otherwise we don't survive. The good boards are already on the way to whatever that adaptation is before the crisis, but they accelerate as they go through it. Yes, absolutely. So boards need to check and they need to challenge and support and enable and do creativity and do control and all of these kinds of things. I mean, I, I do think that the challenge of the board tomorrow is a huge one because what's the role of the, the company tomorrow? We're going to a very oligopolistic world. Uh, the last two years have not been kind by design or accident to the SME sector, which is where lots of job growth comes from and creativity. And the, the role of the board is quite different if you're something like, I don't know, HSBC with a third of a million people. <laughs> you look at a tiny, 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 tiny bit of what the overall company does. Whereas, you know, if a listener says, oh, we're, we're forming a, a startup tomorrow, Patrick, I think it's right up your street. It's, you know, in, in an area for you, you chair for tomorrow. It's going to be a very different thing. But coming back to where uh, you said, I feel like sort of it's water swirling around with everything going in different directions. Because on the one hand, you've had what I personally regard as an insane amount of codification, two dozen codes. More and more gets thrown at the company. You know, codes now talk in my terms about the, the, the characteristics of people around the board table in a sort of Californian sense, um, based on characteristics they had in the, in the womb, which is not something that I was ever uh, in favour of, given that the little abilities I have and don't have actually tended to develop after the womb rather than before. So but there's all sorts of stuff laid, laid at the door of the company. And having all these codes and having all these things that thou must do creates a kind of recruitment process that means that the directors on certainly listed companies today are somewhat different from the 80s. I mean, in the 80s, there used to be other sort of chairmen or other CEOs of other businesses and, you know, good chaps and, and they wouldn't ask too many questions and they'd have a word of the chairman after the meeting and do it in that kind of way. Now you've got all these codes. Now, if you're on a, an important board, you can have the crap beaten out of you at a select committee like the HSBC directors did a little while ago, as I recall. People worry about directors' insurance and, and a very different sort of world. And if you've basically set up a system whereby over time, as it were, a skew has been introduced into the kind of people who fulfil their roles best, it's then very tricky to pivot and get people with business creativity who are really good at tech and data and all this kind of stuff. And having started off by saying that people with grey hair and no hair uh, have some advantages. Well, you know, you did sums and I, and I used computers to do sums when I was at college. So we know numbers a, a little bit. But without being ageist, a lot of the hot, young, tech, data savvy folks are hot, young and data savvy. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, one of the exciting things, I think, at the moment is the rise of what I call next-gen boards. So, you know, I've been very fortunate with a couple of things I've been involved in. So the EY Foundation is a very good example of that, which I chair. So we have a trustee board and we have a youth advisory board. And the chair and the vice chair of the youth advisory board are on the main board. So they are trustees. It's, it's a charity. And the interesting thing is how much that helps our thinking and strategy because the these young people on, on the board bring different experiences to a number of those on the board. We've got a very diverse board, but they bring a you know an additional bit of diversity to the thinking. Because they are less experienced, they tend to get to the point more quickly. Uh, so they, they, you know, they, they're very good at saying, I, I really don't understand why you're doing that, in a way that a more experienced director would try and be more elegant about how they say that. Also, in terms of when we think, so that big meeting that, that a lot of boards have now about, you know, what are the big decisions we need to take in the next spell, typically a year? What are they? When should we take them? How should we take them? 
their input to what things should be on the board agenda, what things shouldn't be on the board agenda is fantastic. So we, you know, we're learning about things that we didn't know. And, and I mean, for people who are interested in next gen boards, there's there's various stuff on the, on the web. But now what you're finding is quite a lot of very serious global organisations have got them, you know, I mean, Gucci, Financial Times, Interbrand, a whole range of others. And I think that is a way without making the boards too big, because you can't, you know, one challenge with uh, with the diversity and inclusion agenda is you, know, you want to keep the board at a certain number so it's effective in terms of, you know, group size. Not like the UK cabinet where there's about 99 people trying to squeeze around a table as if that was a real way of doing anything. I promise myself not to make any comments with regard to... <laughs> Don't worry, the, the Prime Ministers have dispensed with that thing for some time. But what it does do as well, which I've... I mean, I think a lot in Venn diagrams. I think John Venn was an amazing guy, a, a tremendous mathematician, philosopher and social entrepreneur. But if you think of the board and the exec as two circles and you think of that intersection in between being what they do together and you think that there's a spectrum. So at one end of the spectrum, it's a parallel universe. They don't really connect very well at all. And at the other end of the spectrum, they're trying to do each other's jobs. In that middle zone, you know, I think the good boards are thinking about what do we do together and what do we actually, you know, delegate with oversight to the executive. And most people will say board, right strategy, right resources, right governance, exec, develop and deliver the business plan, you know, with input and support from, from others and maintain financial and operational integrity. And you then have these other groups where there's, bits of intersection, like a youth advisory board or maybe other advisory boards if you're in a technology business, where you're getting good input and you're keeping yourself vibrant, I would say. It's not a sterile checking exercise. It's a very energetic. And you're thinking about how do we move this organisation forward? You know, How do we keep it growing? And it goes to the root of, you know, if you're, if you're thinking of starting up a company and you're thinking, you know, well, what size board should I start with? My advice is generally go with a nucleus board, what I call a nucleus board, just a few people, a small board, because you don't actually know yet what you're going to need. And by few, you mean less than five? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, if you if you have a, a CEO and a CFO as the execs on the board, you have a chair and one non-exec, that's enough to get going. So it could be four. Because you're also, you need to be nimble when you're, when you're small. You can't be impeded because, oh God, we've got to pivot. Oh, we're pivoting again. Oh, we're pivoting. You know, you, you don't want a whole bureaucratic process on yeah. that. I mean, I think it's a fascinating topic and, and hearing you talk has emphasised to me, and it's funny about synchronicity, Some, somebody spoke to me for an hour this morning, really around business formats beyond the company and, you know, distributed autonomous organisations and, and all this kind of stuff, da 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 and you know, how the governance would work and all that. And and I, I think, like many things at the moment, I mean, one reason there's a whole sorts of crises in society is that various underlying tensions, it's like in a tectonic zone. The tectonic plates are, are shifting. We don't know where they will come and uh, we'll have to park it, although it's a fascinating topic. But, you know, hearing you talk, I think there are sort of various paradoxes where a deeper historical perspective is most useful in, in understanding them. So, you know, talking about the board, well, if you go back to the original boards, and this is where Cadbury got it completely wrong, I'm afraid. Originally, the owners, it was owner-centric governance, the owners ran the com company. And um, if you have that as the idea of the board today, then, of course, the company decides the strategy. And as just as they did in the 16th century onwards, 
the board then says to the executive, look, go away and do this and dot the I's and cross the T's and work out a plan and all that kind of stuff. So very top-down driven process. And one of the things he was very wrong about was that one of his, as he said in his book, Corporate Governance and Chairmanship, one of the things he said was, oh, you know, one of the motivations for splitting the role was that it was split back in the day the East India Company. No, it was, it was absolutely not split. All chartered companies were like the Bank of England or like the BBC. They had a governor. And when Sir Paul Tucker was on the show and he was speaking about a governor and deputy, deputy governor, it wasn't split like that. So on the one hand, you've got the idea, which is that the board, it's the board, the board responsible to shareholders. It's the board's company and the, and the management does stuff, which was the original philosophy. You've then got this sort of variant, which is when the two-tier board went to Europe and they've got a supervisory board. And actually the supervisory board sits there at the top and makes sure the executives don't do anything naughty or fuck it up or make mistakes and ticks all the boxes and all that kind of stuff. And is wearing a supervisory capacity, which is a very different me- mentality indeed. And, and thinking back to my over 100 interviews, founders and board people, people are, are different points on the spectrum, largely depending on whether, regardless of the, the words on the tin, they have kind of a gut feel about, look, we're here to stop things going wrong and, and to check they're doing their jobs properly, or whether, and this is a big tension often in the enlisted company, whether the board actually has some sense that they're there and it's their company and, you know. Yeah, that sense of sense of shared ownership. I think the other thing is, is it's just, I, mean, I remember talking about this at the, the takes you if you want to influence people and if you want people to tell you things and if you want to have, you know, that influence on the direction of a company, acting like a policeman is not going to do it. But if you do things that are really helpful for the management, they're going to share things with you, they're going to share a problem. If the response every time they share a problem is you tell them off or you beat them up, why would they say anything to you? So I think one of the fundamental things, and it's actually one of the traps, I think, in the current financial service sector, sort of at the large end approach to boards, is that if everyone who goes on a board has to be an expert on financial services at the level that they have to do in the forensic detail that is required by regulators, then the level of diversity is going to and has and is plummeting. You can make it superficially look diverse, but it's not very diverse in terms of thought and experience in that, in that way. And therefore, actually, will those organisations really pay a price for that in the long run? And also the number of people who might want to be a director in those organisations now has, has fallen quite considerably because that isn't as fulfilling a role to do. Obviously, it is very fulfilling for some people, but not the mix that you want to get for those organisations to succeed in the, in the long term. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Well, that's fascinating, Patrick. I mean, originally I'd intended that we got a little bit more into your book, but I think that listeners can tell that you've got considerable experience over a number of decades of boards, and I very much encourage them to check out your book on Amazon with the usual look inside. And certainly for anybody who's a chairman or or wanting to be a chairman, there's a whole range of uh, skills that one needs to chair boards, and you'll find a lot in there. Just wrapping up at this section with a bit more direct relevance to founders and boards at the moment, if your nephew slash niece was off about to form a company next week, you, you suggested that you start with a very small board and that. It's, it's a crazy question. It's a very sort of blog posty question. As you say, you've sat on all sorts of boards in the, in the past yourself and, and seen all sorts of companies in all sorts of sectors notwithstanding which your nephew or niece would be sort of falling asleep if you give a sort of long caveat about why you can't answer the question. What sort of two or three things do you think are, are most impactful that founders out there and, and, and people on boards of, of fintechs and other companies, what are the sort of two or three, look, don't forget this, this and this, and I, and I really recommend that, that and that? 
Yeah. So number one, I think, have a high degree of self-awareness about what you've got in the exec team and what might be missing at this point. Number two, I think, think in phases. So think about what you might need in terms of a board for this next phase, which might be a year or might be a bit, bit longer, and build so you can then build upon it. I mean, and the key thing in my mind is get a really good chair as quickly as you can. I never met anyone who regretted having a good chair too early. I've met loads of people who wish they got a chair earlier. And then just briefly, as a chairman, it's a hell of a job to seduce a good chairman if you're not yet a good company. But any, any particular tips about how to seduce a chairman? Uh, I think the way to, to attract them is by the, uh, the opportunity, the opportunity for the business itself, so its potential, and also the opportunity that you represent in terms of, you know, I get a lot of pleasure in terms of I've been chair to a lot of first-time CEOs. And I really like that. I really like developing someone from, you know, who hasn't got CEO experience, but has got brilliant idea, got the capabilities and the potential, but it's not quite there yet. And it's actually helping them to, you know, grow the business and grow themselves. So really you're talking though about the kind of chairman who has sort of mentoring coaching skills and likes doing that. As I, as I know chairman, yeah. and one famously said, I was going to introduce him to a startup that he would have been a good fit for. He said, look, there's no way I'm going through all that again. He said, I've had children, I've had babies, <laughs> I've changed nappies, I'm not going to change nappies again. And, and so he, if he does chairing, it's going to be the sort of, you know, halfway to IPO and onward stage because he doesn't want to do that. But as you say, there are people like yourself. Well, let's move on because time's shooting by. Before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Patrick, you wear all sorts of hats. Mixing my metaphors, it's getting late in the day, it's early in the year. Uh, which of those hats would you like to wave flags for? <laughs> I'd love to wave a flag for ESSA, Education Sub-Saharan Africa, because we are trying to work on some of the biggest systemic problems in African education, like the faculty crisis, like the women leading area. There are so few women. There are only two and a half percent of vice chancellors in Africa who are women, for example. There are only eight professors in Ghana who are women. And we have some exciting programs to to change that game a bit like the way the 30 percent club has made an impact in the uk so if anyone out there has got any interests in africa and education in solving some of the systemic problems which is much harder takes longer time then i'd, I'd love to hear from you excellent well as i said at the beginning actually i happen to know someone who uh, does quite a lot with uh, sub-saharan african entrepreneurs so i can set the ball rolling and hopefully the listeners will set the ball rolling too well time's absolutely shot by Patrick, as anybody who sits on a board will know or sat on many boards over time, it's uh, once again the old Top Gear saying of how hard can it be? And like most things in life, I mean, look, ice skating looks fairly straightforward, doesn't it really? I mean, you've just got a couple of pieces of thing on your feet and you go, well, how hard can it be trickier than you expect? So as you say, there is limitless value in having a, a, an excellent chairman. And I think there's limitless value in having a whole library of books <laughs> about the board. And so I wish you and your book and uh, your charitable occupations every success in the future. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at 
mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city but With the faces so gray With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.